Hello, Detroit and the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Audio Wave Network Studios, and it's sponsored by the Ford Foundation, now a content partner to BridgeDetroit.com. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens-Davidson. Welcome back. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on our platforms. We drop a new episode every week, so be sure to turn on those notifications. Last week, a story collaboration between NBC News and Outlier Media daylighted a pervasive issue that a lot of Detroiters know all too well. The scam of fake landlords collecting thousands of dollars from vulnerable residents who think they're paying the true owner of a property and or a property management company. Today, we are going to spend the entire episode talking about that story and the issue of scheming fake landlords taking advantage of many Detroiters. Joining us today are the reporters who broke the story. Aaron Mondry is a reporter and editor with Outlier Media and The Dig with Detour Detroit. Aaron, I can't believe it's the first time we're saying this. Welcome to Authentically Detroit. <laughs> Thanks. Good to be here. Happy to have you. Also joining us is Aaron Einhorn. Aaron is the Detroit-based reporter and editor for NBC News and is a frequent collaborator with Outlier Media and Bridge Detroit. Y'all remember that Burwood Wall story? Aaron, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Thanks for having me. We're so excited to have both Aaron's here. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> I feel like I know both of you because I've read your byline so often. We so love the really by I was exciting. telling yeah. them both. We love the bylines here. Exactly. So uh this is this is so happy. We're so happy that they said yes. How's the day finding everybody? Donna, how is today finding you? Super busy. Yeah. Super busy. I started out this morning. Um well, we're finding my presentation. I had a keynote address at a national conference online. Come on, professor. <laughs> and, you know, it's really scary when you talk to people and you can't see anybody. It's yeah. like, I hope I'm hitting the right notes. And then people are like, oh, that was great. And it's like, are you being polite? <laughs> or was it really good? So, yeah, that's a, and then, you know, we did a panel discussion, but it was a great opportunity to connect with people from all over the nation working on sustainability issues and just see all of the good work that's being done on the community level. Um, after reading stories like I read last week, this is kind of, you know, kind of lifts me back up to remember yeah. that there are so many good people out in the world. What kind of feedback did your presentation draw from the audience? What were they saying? What kind of questions did they ask? And what was um, it about? <laughs> Tell us about it. Wow. It was the importance of creating a people of color network of leaders mm. in the United States around sustainability and environmental issues. Mm. And so, um, you know, I think. My perspective is when we talk about climate justice or when we talk about climate adaptation, we always talk about greenhouse gases and we always talk about reducing emissions. What we don't talk about is the environmental racism that is creating real harms. Um, it's one thing to say, let's reduce greenhouse gases. And it's another thing to say, stop poisoning these communities. It's another thing to say, stop mining for uranium on um, Indian reservations. It's another thing to say, stop, you know, um, invest in stormwater infrastructure in low-income communities, invest in infrastructure because we've got flooding in New Orleans and, this, you know, first you had Hurricane Katrina and that was because the levees did not have the investment they needed. And then you had this, you know, month-long electrical out outage because you didn't invest in the power grid. And, you know, the common threat is a lack of investment. Mm. And so as we talk about climate, as we talk about all of these things, we really have to look at the fact that um, you know, there's this injustice. And the other thing I really want people to think about is that racism 
and um, and sustainability cannot coexist. Yeah, <laughs> that racism True is a direct threat yes. to sustainability. There's yes. no such thing, right? As long as you can poison where some people live, as long as you can exploit resources that some people have, you're going to have a lack of sustainability. Sustainability means justice. It means inclusive social you know, well-being. And those are kind of the kinds of things that we keep on having to push on that. You used to say that we're all not the time. Going, I know. Social like, inclusive well-being. That's one of my favorite terms. When yeah. I read it, I was like, I'm going to use this every day now. <laughs> um, because this idea that we've all either we're all going to do well together or we're not. And so that was the lesson I was trying to impart. Um, and, I th- you know, people, and it got through? It did. People said, wow, you know, thank you, professor, and that like that. Yes. You need to teach a class on this. I was like, like I kind of do. do. At Columbia <laughs> University, that it never gets old when I get to say that. It never gets old, and you're going to come to my class in a couple of weeks. Am I? Yes, Great. You, are. You're okay. on, I, you, you agree to it. Yeah. Okay. Send me the date. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Orlando? How's your day been? Oh, man. Uh, I, I, I don't know uh, my tale from the front today it's been a a really really busy day productive so i've i i've began to manage my schedule in a way that leaves work blocks on mondays um wednesdays and most of friday sometimes i'll allow a meeting on friday but tuesday and thursdays are the days where i take all of the meetings and so it's just been from one place uh to the next from one interview uh to the next it's good it's been fulfilling it was a beautiful day in detroit today so it was really fun to get outside one of my meetings was over food uh with uh i met with don jones today uh who just just retired about four months ago from New Economy Initiative, and you know when I when you meet with Don Jones, he pays, and so I was happy. I was happy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was happy. So it's 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 been a a really good day, and as always, my highlight on Tuesdays is having the opportunity and the privilege to come here in this space. Always the highlight on a Tuesday. Isn't always, it? always, yeah. yeah. How's the day finding you, Aaron and Aaron, which whichever Aaron was to go. Yeah, first. you're gonna have to differentiate us by our last name or yeah. something. Um, but um, yeah, it's going good. The feedback from this article has been pretty remarkable. Yeah. Um, you know, Tuesdays. Uh, so the dig, <clears throat> the newsletter I write on on real estate and development that goes out Wednesday mornings. So Tuesday is usually a pretty busy day. But um, yeah, coming in here, I love the energy you guys put out on this podcast. So it's we're gonna have a good time. Yeah, can't Thank wait. You. How about you, Aaron? You know, I, I've been, I actually, I, I've been, so the story I think published, what, a Wednesday I think we published mm-hmm. it, and I've been trying to, I've been sharing it with elected officials to try to get some kind of response. And I was, a lot of those emails sort of went out the next day, which was November 11th, which was Veterans Day, and the offices were closed, and I wasn't getting responses, but, and so I actually, today was a day when I finally started getting some responses. And nice. So I, I, I spent the day doing a, a bunch of interviews with elected officials about this issue um, and just kind of talking to folks about, you know, because this is this is this problem, we'll get to it, but, you know, it's this problem that's kind of persisted uh, for a long time in mm-hmm. the city, and, you know, so, you know, when you do stories like this, you want to see, um the issue gets some attention and and some kind of response from people who could try to fix it. So that was, it was a good day for me in the sense that I was like finally getting some of those calls returned. It was taking me a while. That's really good to hear. And, you know, we really want to make sure that we're doing our part to make sure that those calls are returned and that the issue is responded to, you know, it goes back to the theme of my um, talk today. And that is that when you harm people who don't have visibility, who don't have power, 
who feel like they don't have the ability to fight back, first of all, people feel shame. How did I let this happen to me? And the second thing is that nobody really believes them. There's no believability because you're already looked at as being um, less than a full member of our society and it allows people to get away with exploiting them for so long. So I really want to thank you for the story. I yeah. found out about the story when my, um, my daughter Sarah sent me a text message saying, you have to read this story. And I was like, wow, that's really terrible. I hope somebody does something about it. And she says, um, you have a podcast. <laughs> so when Orlando said, what do you want to talk about? I said, I think we need to talk about this story. And, yeah. um, and I'm just so overjoyed that you are actually here. Yes. I'm um, talking with us, both of you talking to us about um, what you're reporting. I got to tell you, it blew up the group chat. I ain't going to lie. <laughs> and it was so it was so crazy because I I know I'm the, the news, the person that's in news. And so I'm the one that's constantly sending out articles and I think like the group chat should read somebody else sent this in the group chat so I was proud that folks are consuming news and I'm like oh my god this is super cool I'm super close to this story I know some of the folks who wrote it and uh it you know it it, it blew it up it was it was a full on you know just discussion and discuss but before we move on can can you guys just provide a a, a brief overview of the the fake landlord story uh that published last week so people can sort of catch up as to where we are if they haven't read the story it's been everywhere so but uh aaron or aaron <laughs> aaron do you want to take this sure sure i mean you know so it, it's I mean, the fake landlord scam, you know, it, it comes in lots of different forms. But essentially, you know, in, in reporting the story, we decided to define it more or less as any situation where somebody either sells or rents out a house that they don't actually own. And sometimes, you know, a, a lot of times, in fact, it's somebody who maybe used to own the house and the house was foreclosed uh, and, you know, they lost the house to foreclosure and that former owner went on, kept on collecting the rent, or maybe it was a former property manager, went on collecting the rent, never let on to the tenant uh, that they were no longer legally authorized to do that. And the person keeps paying until they find out, you know, the, the, the new owner shows up and says, you haven't been paying me. And then they're facing eviction. Um, you know, and then in the other circumstances, just full on con artists who, you know, you got a vacant home, they can walk in, you know, they break down the door if, or if there is a door, take, take off a piece of plywood where the door is, you know, they change the locks, whatever, and then, you know, list the house for sale or rent and show it up, show it to people and say, you know, this is this is the house and then they can collect rent, they can collect payments. We heard lots of different variations of it. Um but essentially, it all comes down to people taking advantage of all the very real housing challenges facing Detroiters, and we should get into all of those challenges. Yeah. Thank you for highlighting that, because I think what we are seeing is symptomatic of larger systemic issues of, uh, as we always say on this show, predatory inclusion, the implosion of the housing market in 2008, which was symptomatic of the tax foreclosure crisis that we're seeing here in the city that has wiped away so much wealth and ownership from this community leaving the the the, the pavements ripe for this kind of kind of scam right yeah yeah that is that is the oh i'm sorry Did you, that that 
really is the single biggest factor that's allowed this scam to spread so widely. Um, you know, when you have tens of thousands of vacant homes, um, it, it makes perpetrating it so so much easier. Um, you know, the land bank has an enormous inventory that they can't manage effectively. You have out-of-state investors that aren't checking in on their homes regularly. Um, so there's it, there's a kind of lawlessness to this, which is due to the, the tax foreclosure crisis that struck the city. Right. You know, we also had um, public housing in Detroit at one time. Mm. And public housing provided housing to a number of people who don't not, do not automatically qualify for, um, you know, naturally occurring affordable housing. Mm-hmm. There's such a shortage of subsidized affordable housing in the city. And, um, and so I think that there's no real oversight. And then you had this rental ordinance, which sounded good. But then what happens if somebody says, I'll sell it, I'll lease to own. Now I'm not entering into a formal rental contract, and this doesn't seem to cover me. Now, there was one area in the story where you talked about land contracts and lease to own interchangeably, I think. But in talking to Ted Phillips, those are two separate kinds of instruments, both of which are abused. There's a little bit of regulation over land contracts, none over lease to own. Lease to own is like the worst of all worlds. Did you see um, that it was usually leased to own or land contracts in equal measure? What were your findings? I mean, I think a lot of times people don't know what it's called that they're doing. I think the, the, the term land contract is used by, you know, a lot of people to include the lease to own. So I, I, we ended mm-hmm. up folding the folding those together because it just wasn't you know in a in a in a story like this that's that's meant for a broad audience getting into the specifics about you know which particular instrument is being used it also doesn't matter because the whole thing was focused to begin with well, right? no right I, I agree with you so i mean we we yeah i mean so you know that like the so the the, the woman who was the main um subject miss june walker yeah miss june right. walker she, you know, she she described she she used the phrase land contract to describe mm-hmm. what she um, what she had entered into. Though what she had entered into was was a rent was a rent to own uh, arrangement. Can we can, can we talk about Miss June Walker? Uh, because reading about this woman and hearing um, about her excitement to you know enter into an agreement in a home that needed a whole lot of work but it was it was a home right uh the story highlights that she had some you know all kinds of challenges for years and was working on rebuilding her life and rebuilding her relationship with her children i fell in love with this woman and i fell in love uh with her with her excitement in this reinvigoration for life uh that she had and when she accomplished when she thought she accomplished something like paying off a home and owning it and to see it snatched away first off how did y'all find Miss June Walker? What was what was what was that process like? Um, what was and how long did this how long did this take? This this took I'm sure a lot of reporting, a lot of time. How did y'all find her? And what, you know how did how did it go? We spent. I mean, it did take months. And in fact, the the mo- most of the the time that we I think I think we first started talking about this in I want to say it was August, over the summer in August, yeah, yeah. and. You know, How did you know it was a problem? Let's start there. How did you know this was a problem that was worth exploring and talking about? So this story actually originated 
uh, for me, at least, at the beginning of the summer when I knew the federal eviction moratorium was about to expire. And so I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a national reporter for NBC, NBC News uh, online, so NBCNews.com. So I'm a, I'm a writer for NBC News's website an enterprise reporter, which means I can write about, you know, it's, it's not, I'm not, I'm not covering breaking news. So I'm, I'm looking for, for substantive policy stories on really any subject. And I'm based in Detroit. So I'm, I'm part of my job is that I'm, you know, just find things that are happening in Detroit and Michigan and the Midwest or, or nationally. So I write about, you know, sometimes pre pandemic, I would travel places and, and report from other places as well. Um, but I, you know, I saw, I knew that, you know, the, the moratorium was going to expire. And I said, you know, I bet this is going to really affect a lot of folks in Detroit. And so I just started calling housing attorneys to ask, you know, mm. what's going on? What are you seeing among your clients? I spent, you know, a couple of days actually just watching housing court, 36th district, because it's oh. the beauty of, of the virtual courtroom is you can just kind of pop by and watch and hear and. You know, and I started, you know, a couple people would, you know, mentioned, you know, the, you know, these, the situation that their clients are in. It was mostly the attorneys saying, you know, this situation or that situation. And, and a couple folks mentioned this scam. But what struck me is that they mentioned it in this really casual way. Well, you know, of course, like the fake landlord scam. And they were just kind of talking about it. Like, of course, everybody knows that. And I was like, wait, wait, what scam? Like, what are you talking about? And they're like, yeah, you know, people rent, you know, the people find out later that their landlord wasn't really their landlord. And I was like, wait, what? And then I started, I called more people and they're like, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, we see that all the time. Mm. And I was like, well, why is there not, you know, why, why, have there, why have there not been, you know, huge screaming headlines about this? And, you know, you look, you'll find like individual stories. Here's this, you know, here's this one person who was scammed or here's this. But it just, it was so clear that it was so pervasive and actually, this is sort of an interesting little twist on it, is that I don't know that I think the we know it's pervasive because since the pandemic began, um, tenants facing eviction in housing court in Detroit have had access to counsel. So lawyers have been assigned to tenants since, due to COVID relief funds. Mm -hmm. And so more tenants are, are getting that representation. And so the people who, you know, a reporter is going to call and say, hey, what are you seeing? A lot of those people who before before now, before this, you know, these last couple of years wouldn't, you know, they, their, their case would have just proceeded without any representation. No one would have really, you know, wouldn't have had any an opportunity to be a big issue. So the, that sort of access to counsel also created this like access to. NBC News, you know, to to the to that to that platform. So I have a question about this because in the story it was kind of shocking to me that almost none of these cases are prosecuted. It was like a it was a crazy number, like eight, fourteen. So it's fourteen out of twenty five were referred for prosecution, and fourteen were conviction convictions or something like that. Yeah. So the the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office has a mortgage and deed fraud unit and it fields well over a thousand complaints every mm -hmm. year. Um, mm -hmm. And in 2019, it investigated 122 of those, I think, excuse me if my numbers are slightly off and 14 of those cases resulted in conviction, which is insane. Um, it takes a lot of work to investigate these claims and untangle the web of, of ownership claims. And that's an issue that, 
we ran into a lot, um, you know, trying to, to figure, trying to verify these people's stories, track down some of the owners. Um, it was a really challenging process. And that, that represented the bulk of our reporting for the story. Those, is that fraud? What is the crime? There's several, um, kinds of crime that the, the unit, um, prosecutes i don't recall the exact names of them they're very technical and lawyerly but they're like <laughs> um you know forging a deed mm. you know making false representation of, of owning a property right. stuff like if, that if i i can make a false representation and say i own something i can impersonate somebody it's a whole lot different if i impersonate somebody and then i commit a crime as a result of that impersonation isn't it like i'm collecting money from you right that like if I, I, I just think if I, you know, decided to create this identity and I started collecting money from a bank or collecting money from a corporation, that might be considered fraud or there might be considered a real serious crime, a financial crime worthy of a serious prosecution. I wonder if this rises to that occasion or if there's the same level of criminal concern. Mm. With this, as there is, if if you commit a crime against um, an entity that has more value in our society, oh, I mean, it, it, that's the question, right? It's a good question. So, go I mean, ahead. yeah, I yeah. mean, the crime is fraud and, and it's theft, and you know, uh, you know, and all. I mean, so there, there's, I don't think there'd be. I mean, if they could catch these guys, I don't think they would have trouble finding something in the criminal code that they could throw at them. But just to, just to kind of circle back to the question you were asking before about kind of, you know, how do you find these folks? And, you know, we really struggled with that. So, you know, once we knew that this was a story we wanted to pursue, we were asking everybody, we, you know, every lawyer we could find, you know, landlord lawyers, tenant lawyers, community activists, I was calling community groups. And everybody I would call said, oh, yeah, yeah, we hear about that all the time. And I'd say, well, can you give me somebody? Can you put me in touch with a victim? You know, and like the land bank gave us a, a number of victims, but we kept, and then we would find somebody, we'd interview them. I was like, okay, this person's got a really good story. We can tell this person's story. And then we had a couple of folks drop out because they were afraid for their personal safety because, mm. oh, I actually, I see my scammer in the neighborhood. He lives around the corner uh, in one case. And some know. of them have made, yeah, very scary threats against them as well very scary threats so so people felt unsafe sharing their story publicly um or they just or we would you know they would talk to us you know people are also busy they have difficult you know a lot, lot of things going on and they'd maybe they'd talk to us once and then we'd we'd follow up and and they'd say oh you know I, well, you know we want you know we also we had to verify the stories which mm -hmm. means we needed personal documents and stuff like that 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 not everybody's comfortable sharing so it, it really did take us quite a long time to find, uh, you know, to find June Walker, who both had this, you know, very important story to tell, and she was willing to tell it. Mm. You know, she wasn't she wasn't ashamed of what happened to her, nor should she be. Um, but she, you know, she was she was willing to put herself out there like that, and and not a lot of people are yeah. after something like this. Exactly, yeah. I think that part of it may be, like you said, people are afraid to prosecute, especially if they're people in the neighborhood, people that you know, because I imagine there's all different types of people who are committing these crimes. It's not just the guy down the street or around the block from you. Are there people from outside the community who are also doing this, or is this sort of a localized crime 
committed by people who know people. I mean, from what we could tell, it's it's mostly perpetrated by locals, mm. I would say. Um, I mean, there may be some willful ignorance on the part of out-of-town investors who own property and sort of... Um, like Ms. Walker's case. I, yeah. I, I, I don't know if I can... I certainly can't say that for sure. I well, certainly didn't, his, didn't he, but, he disconnect his phone, though? No, like the, the, re, the real property owner, like the property management company of Ms. Walker's... Oh, that's um, right. The property management company. There was a guy who pretended to be the owner yeah. and a guy who pretended to be the manager. It was two and guys. then there's the actual property management oh, company. Man, that At is the gross. very least, it is it is negligence on the part of the owner. Yeah. Um, Because you have a person living in your property who's making repairs to the property and you know, you're not checking in on it or um, stopping her in any way. Let's talk, so, let's talk about negligence because I one of the largest property owner in the city of Detroit is the Detroit land bank authority. And a lot of these uh, scams and issues are taking place in properties around the city that the land bank owns, right? That the land bank, doesn't have the capacity to secure and or uh, do the fidelity work in making sure that there is some sort of relationship, you know, whatever that relationship should look like. How is the land bank responding um, to to this pervasive issue uh, now that it's receiving, you know, a lot of attention? I know that you guys got a couple of quotes while in the reporting process from the land bank. Uh, what were they saying then and what are they saying now? I mean, I'd actually, you know, the land bank, among all the institutions that we were in contact with while reporting this story, the land bank was probably the most helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, they and, and, and they're actually the, the one institution in Detroit that actually has, I mean, they have somebody on staff whose job it is to investigate scams and, and turn them over to police, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and then they, one person. One person. Yeah. It's, you that's know, how it goes. That's how it goes. And I think they, they, they've turned over, I think, 10 cases. Um, the unit was founded in, in, I think, early last year. And since then, they've turned over 10 cases to police. Um, you know, I mean, the other, I mean, the other thing about the land bank is they have this buyback program. So, you know, if you are living in a land bank house when you get scammed, that can be used as grounds to qualify you for this buyback program, which would, you know, enable you to actually own that house, um, which, you know, in the case of June Walker, whose house was owned by a, whose house is currently owned by a Florida company, she doesn't have that option. You know, right. that, you know, so, so, you know, I mean, you know, it, it, you know, I mean, the land bank, you know, I think we're all probably I'm guessing most people who listen to this podcast are very familiar with all the various challenges facing the land bank and, and sure. you know, <laughs> the management of their houses. But, you know, at least in this particular issue, they're doing something, you know, which is more than other more than we can say about other institutions. So a couple of questions. One, the landlord who's you know not local. Did he purchase it from the Wayne County auction? How do you get this purchase for this home? So. They purchased it. The company purchased it, which um, <clears throat> it's registered to two brothers. Um, at well, a- there was there was a, there were two companies. So there was a there was an original co- so the, the the company that bought it the house I think was foreclosed originally in like 2014 I mm-hmm. think and then it was sold in the tax auction in 2017. Right. Mm-hmm. 
and this Pennsylvania company bought right. it. So I guess, you know, if ECN wanted to purchase property from the land bank, um, in fact, we do, and we're in the process of trying to purchase property from the land bank, we have to prove a whole lot of things before we purchase the property. We can't just write a check. And the auction process lends itself to abuse, doesn't it? I mean, do we need to look at reforming things like the auction process so that we're not putting property into the hands of entities that may be, you know, some of the biggest tax, you know, um, tax criminals, you know, just not paying taxes on the property. They, it goes into foreclosure, goes back. And then you also have people who purchase it. And I think you mentioned it. They just sit on it, don't do anything with the property. Doesn't make sense to look at regulating that as a way of preventing some of these hands-off, you know, owners. And the other question I have around a response is whether or not there needs to be some type of law enforcement arm of the Detroit Land Bank Authority um, so that when people engage in this specific type of property crime, you have specialists who are prosecutors, attorneys, or um, investigators who are investigating these crimes with that special skill set because when you look at the abundance of crime in our community, I wonder if this ever rises to the top. It just feels like it's a low-priority offense, and the Wayne County prosecutor can't put a lot of effort into it, but the Detroit Land Bank Authority or some other entity could begin to say, let's start managing or policing what's happening to vacant homes in our community. I mean, you're. I think you're. You're talking about a number of policy solutions that I, 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 I really hope to see that conversation happening. And certainly, you know, as journalists, I don't know that we can go there particularly or take those kinds of stands or positions. I mean, our our role in in this is identify the problem, identify the causes of the problem, bring attention to that problem, and then you know what we really hope you know, so that our work can have mm -hmm. impact is that folks like yourselves and, you know, advocates and and policymakers can then take it from there and figure out, okay, what is the solution? What are the what are the, the, the gaps we need to close and the, the 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 broken laws we need to fix. I will say it does seem like there needs to be more communication between the various agencies and actors that are a part of this. So, you know, DT Energy will sometimes spot um, ID fraud and um, they'll just shut off surface. They don't report it. Um, the land bank, you know, started their real property investigative unit last year. That's just getting going. Mm. Okay. Um, yeah. Again, just one person. Right. <clears throat> but um, it, it exists. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the process that, some some of these cases are referred to the Detroit Police Department. Um, we tried to um, we we wrote a Freedom of Information Act request for more information about that from the from from the police department. Yeah, mm -hmm. oh yeah, did not make get a, a reply in time for publication. They make us FOIA them all the time too. Let me let me ask you this, and this is while, while we're on the subject of police, because you guys also interviewed another uh, man who. Uh, had been a victim of, you know, the scam and actually lost uh, some of his pets because he came home. He came home to a boarded up home that he can no longer access. Uh, and this issue about prosecution, this issue about reporting it to the police, you guys asked him if he reported this to the police. And it's a small nuance in the story, but I think it has such big implication. What did he say? He said he just doesn't deal with the police. 
Yeah. Um, and I imagine that's, you know, a somewhat common thing that happens to, to people who are victims of this scam. Um, you know, they, they have a general distrust of the police and don't want to get them involved. Yeah. Um, but it's not clear that the police have been doing all that much anyway, even if they do get involved. What I wonder about from a national perspective, I know that Detroit has this abundance of vacant housing, but I wonder if similar types of property crimes are happening in other communities and whether other communities handle this differently. Like, is this just a national thing where housing that is, you know, in low-income neighborhoods, sometimes you have this kind of fraud taking place, or is this a Detroit-specific problem that doesn't happen other places? I think like a lot of things where it's Detroit and the rest of the country is that some of these issues exist everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but Detroit is always more, you know, it's an outlier in so many it's, housing it's, cases. Yeah. You know, the, the challenges are deeper and the impact is more extreme. So, I mean, you know, so just in kind of, you know, Googling around at the beginning of the process to kind of figure out, you know, where else is this scam happening? You know, I would see examples elsewhere of, you know, there's the scam where somebody, like the Craigslist scam, they'll list the house for sale or rent, and they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, wire me the money for the down payment, and then they disappear. Mm. But nowhere else have I seen examples where it's, you know, the, 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 quote, landlord rents the house out, and then they come back next month, and the month after that, and the month after that. In the case of June Walker, two, more than two years, this guy came back. And she was handing him. She was handing him yeah. money, and he gave her a receipt, and she had every single receipt. She had, I think it was like 26 receipts every single oh month. Some of them were money orders. She had all the money order receipts. Some of them were handwritten receipts, and the guy signed it, and he gave it to her. She had every single receipt. From this man, she she had this relationship with this man who came back every month, and they, you know, oh, hey, how are you? They chatted, and she'd give him the money, and he'd give her the receipt, and hey, see you next month. Wow. And and then, you know, she, you know, she, she, she makes her final payment and is just rejoicing. Exuberant. And right. she's dancing around the, the house. She says, I called everybody I knew. I couldn't believe it. Somebody like me who makes $700 a month, $700 a month on disability, Somebody like me could be a homeowner. And after, and she's this woman who'd, who'd endured so much in her life. She'd, she'd been homeless. She'd had a decades-long struggle with, with, uh, addiction. with addiction. And, you know, here she'd, she'd you know, gotten her life together. She'd, she'd, you know, she, and she just really wanted this house for her family. And her grandchildren. And her grandchildren. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, then, you know, and she just finds out the whole thing was just a sham. I really hope, really hope that there's a good ending for her because that brought tears to my eyes as I was reading it. You know, I really love the way you just told the story through her eyes because by the time you got to that, it was like, no, (laughs) no, this is a horror story. You really brought, you helped humanize this issue. It wasn't just a statistical problem. It was this happened to this one woman who worked so hard to make her house nice. So I want to thank you for telling it that way. But I have a question. How did you arrive at the number one in 10? That was pretty shocking. Yeah, that was from, uh, you know, different, it was mostly from, well, it was actually from housing attorneys. Actually, uh, a couple of 
attorneys represent tenants. Uh, one of them said, you know, I think he said it was five. He he it was, it was an estimate. You know, of the two hundred cases I've had this year, I'd say five to ten percent had some some kind of issue like this. And then I heard it from the landlord side too. It was an attorney who represents landlords who says, you know, he's evicting clients, he's evicting people, and he gets to court and you know he says, I think he said seven to ten percent. Uh, and then you know I interviewed an individual who I actually didn't quote in the story, who uh, works. He does he does renovation. He renovates actually land bank houses. Um, and so he every he says every month he gets ten a list of ten occupied houses from the land bank, and he knocks on all ten doors. And every month he says at least one there's somebody in there who's been paying rent yeah. to somebody who isn't the land bank, which is the owner of the house. You know, another lawyer said, oh yeah, well I see it. You know, I'd say every other week. I mean, in the land bank, they've got the buyback program. They said one in five people who apply for the buyback, more or less. It's an estimate. Um, well, that's that's even more than one in ten if you look at one in five who apply. Yeah. yeah. Now you inter- you interviewed the corporation counsel, Lawrence Garcia. Lawrence Garcia. Yeah. And he seemed really concerned about this project, this issue. I mean, you know, I I don't think he, you know, the. Yeah, I, I, you know, we we had, we reached out to the city. You know, we kind of explained the issue. They had Lawrence Garcia call us, um, you know, and he said, you know, he was familiar with it. More, you know, he was kind of familiar with it. He, I don't think he knew that much about it. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, and I think I think the nature of this is that I don't think it is that well known, and so that's why we did the story. So mm-hmm. hopefully, now that the you know the issue's got a little bit more attention, um, you know, the response. You know, maybe we get a little bit more specific response from the city. Perhaps if there are people in the administration or on city council who demand more of a response, you'll get a better response from the corporation council. Maybe, but Aaron, Aaron's been calling up um, officials at the local and state level, trying to get a response from them um, for an article this week. I don't know if you're allowed to update. Yeah, is there an update? What are they saying, Aaron? I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, I think a lot of it is, you know, I mean, I'm having these conversations. Some of them are kind of like spitballing a little Certainly, bit, you know, yeah. like, oh, well, we could do this or we could do that. And so, I mean, I, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have my my team look into that, you know. I mean, a lot. I mean, some of it's, you know, we need information. You need, we, you sure. know, I think I think everyone kind of comes. I mean, that you know, you need enforcement. Uh, and, you know, people need to... It's people, been a quiet storm. Well, and people need to report it. I mean, you know, let's, you know, to put this on the police when we interviewed eight victims, only one of whom told police. So we can, you yeah. can talk about police response, but they can only... Um, but, you know, listen, I, I had my, I've, I've been burglarized twice, mm-hmm. called the police both times, got no response. So to some extent, you can put it on people, but it's just like rape, Right. You say it's the victim's fault because they don't, and you're not saying that, but I'm saying people pe- people need to report rape. But when you report it and you end up finding yourself in a situation where people look at you differently or how come you didn't do this or how come you didn't do that or did you do this or did you do that? I think that we have to also deal with the fact that it's not always easy and people don't always get police responsiveness. You know, um, some people expect if I call the police, they're going to care and they're going to show up and they're going to do their due diligence and investigate it. And some people believe, you know, the police don't care about me. And so I think that if we had a way intermediary entities to help, you know, and that's why you have these rape counseling organizations to help people, help victims and help them deal with it and figure out because it really is a violation 
of trust and of your your home and you think you're doing something and especially if you think you're purchasing a house I cannot even imagine the amount of shame some people feel because you told everybody in your family this is my house I'm purchasing it you've got that in your head and you find out you've been giving money to somebody you know my grandmother got scammed and she was 80 years old she just felt so stupid you know it's like oh and it she didn't pay money to somebody for a year. She just you know, gave somebody $2,000 one time. So I think we do want people to definitely have a better relationship with law enforcement. But I think the challenge of that relationship with law enforcement is deeper than one thing. And I think that there's this isolation. And one great thing about the story is you can point it to people and people can say, it's not just me. Because anybody who's reading this story is like, wow, I'm not the only one. I, I, I wonder if before you reached out to her, if people said, oh, yeah, that, that happens all of the time. You know, Miss Walker, maybe she knew. But I imagine some people just think I messed up. Mm. And take on that responsibility. And take it on and yeah. internalize, and internalize it. it. And never talk about and, it. You know, you're not even going to tell your cousin, nobody, because everybody's going to look at you like, yeah. how stupid can you be? Did you look at, did you ask to see this? No, I didn't think to ask you that. Did you ask to see that? No. Did you get an appraisal? No. I mean, you know what I'm saying. All of the kinds of things that people may ask that may expose somebody's lack of knowledge about the home buying process and the lack of sophistication. So um, I think that if there was uh, an attempt, and I'm not certain that can happen, and I know this is, you guys are reporters, and I'm on the community side always trying to, come up with ideas for how to solve things. But if there was an attempt or if there was a way that organizations like mine, and I think you talked about it in the story, even having community organizations get involved in spreading the word, then we could invite people to tell us. Yeah, we, we do need better home buyer education in the city. Um, <clears throat> I don't know the, the exact best way to, to relay that information, but um, you know, because credit scores are so low here, it's it's impossible for people to get mortgages. 75% of home sales in 2019 okay. were cash. Um, so there are obviously a lot fewer guardrails when you do something like that. Um, you know, there's no title search. Um, you know, it's not um, guaranteed by the, the sales and guaranteed by the government or backed by a bank. So inspections, all, all of it. Yeah, right, precisely. And and I and I was talking earlier about you know the COVID relief funds are being used to uh, to pay attorneys to represent tenants in housing court, but those are folks who are already being evicted. So you know, are there resources if somebody wanted to talk to a lawyer before they sign that lease or before they make that purchase? You know, where you know somebody you know you know are there legal resources in the community that could do housing counseling. You know, so one of the advocates that, that I quoted in the story was talking about, you know, you know, could you use some of those funds to create, you know, a hub in the neighborhood where there's somebody, you know, it doesn't, you know, it could be a, a, a volunteer who knows how to do it, you know, just look up the, the deed information on the, on, on the, the county site. On the county mm -hmm. site. Yeah. You, know, you guys. As a resource to people. You guys left us. On a cliffhanger with that story. Yes. Uh, it came out Wednesday. Miss Walker was doing court that Friday. Is there an update on this this saga? Um, negotiations are ongoing. Um, so 
at Friday's court date, the judge pretty swiftly adjourned it until January to try and give the two sides a chance to potentially come to an agreement on a sale. Um, some donations have come in for June since the article was published and, and attention was brought to the story. Um, I got an update today from June's lawyer who said that the, the owner, um, you know, this Florida LLC, um, wants June to stay, but as a renter. Mm, no, um, we want June to own the house. So, you know, June's oh, lawyers Walker. are hoping that there is enough time um, to convince this owner to, to sell it instead. Um, the next court date is January 22nd, I believe. $700 fixed income a month. Yeah, she paid $15,000 in this company. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, right? Hopefully, it's hopefully between still now be made and whole, then, right? hopefully between now and then we can do something. Something should be done. Um, you know, I think about the fact that we have the foreclosure prevention, and this is another idea. Um, and we already have people going door to door talking about how to get your taxes in order. And we already have um, efforts for people to come in here. I wonder if we could do a homeowner education program or a housing education program yeah, housing, that's tied renting. to that. I think they call it the HOPE program right now, where you can get your back taxes abated if you're low income. I wonder if we could add to that kind of program since we've already built, since really, you know, um, Rock Bedrock has really supported the creation of this network of neighborhood hubs doing this work so that you don't have to create something all new. And now that we have this new fund that um, is going to be invested in neighborhoods for neighborhood stability, maybe that's one of the uses of those dollars. Yeah. Get and lawyers in communities get lawyers and, and, and CDCs for real, because it's, yeah, yeah. it's, it's needed. And, and, and just more community education for sure on all of these things. I've actually wanted to educate on land contracts forever. That's one of the reasons I was asking about the difference between a land contract and a lease. I think from a legislative point, um, point of view, really changing things right now, if you have a land contract, you don't have to file it. Um, with the county, but you could set it up so that you do have to file it, and therefore people would know if they had a land contract. There's things that we can do, um, and I think this story has helped open our eyes and reminds us there's something that we must do, all of us, really, you know, not just downtown. But I hope that the city council gets involved in trying to allocate some funds that we now have for the, um, the ARPA funds. And some of our um, philanthropists in the city get involved in trying to allocate some funds to address this problem because we should never just say, oh, you know, you mean the fake sales or whatever it is. You know, that yeah. should not be something that we just say offhand because nobody expects it to change. Yeah. Aaron Ihon, I want to ask you this question. You've been uh, collaborating uh, with local Detroit newsrooms like an outlier media and uh, British Detroit uh, to break these, you know, really, really amazing and extensive substantive stories. The Burwood Wall story, this fake um, landlord story. Um, tell, tell us how these partnerships uh came to be and why they're so important? I mean, I think it's, you know, I mean, the the beauty of working for a large national news organization is, you know, we have we have the reach and we have the platform, you know, and like when we did the Burwood Wall story, you know, we had like the video element. There was all, you know, the, 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 the graphics and all of that. Uh, but we don't have the 
you know, I, I live in Detroit, but I'm just one person, you know, and so we don't have the, the sort of local grounding, you know, and, and, you know, in the, in the case of this story, the fake landlord story, you know, when I knew I was going to be working on a, a housing story, you know, I knew outlier, um, you know, has, has been all over that beat and they know the story very well. And then, you know, they have the text messaging platform, which actually enabled us to find, a couple of the victims that we were able to interview because this was a, you know, it was difficult finding the tenants. And so Outlier uses a, a text messaging platform mm -hmm. that, to contact Detroiters that, that was able to, to, you know, bring some of these cases to light with, that we otherwise wouldn't have been able to, to know about. I mean, it's, it, it makes sense. And I think it could serve, you know, as a, a really, uh, amazing model for national news networks who want to do work in localized cities to uh, go to the the local newsrooms and provide additional amplification and agency to uh, not only that talent that exists in those newsrooms, but the expertise that are in those newsrooms. So, you know, to, for the two stories that I am aware of, they both have had tremendous reach and uh, have been the impetus for a lot of great work. So great work. Guys. Yeah. And yeah. not non-traditional newsrooms, right? Yeah. Because outlier is an outlier. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I subscribe. But can you yeah. tell people how outlier works? Yeah. Sure. Can we talk about the text messaging? Yeah. So outlier media is a service journalism organization. Um, so we, we try and find gaps in, in information needs and accountability. Um, and one of the primary ways we do that is through this text messaging service where we regularly send out blasts to um, numbers of Detroiters, um, sort of seeing what kinds of issues they're facing. Um, usually it's around housing and utilities. And, um, you know, the, in this service, you can kind of have a, a little conversation with people. Um, at first it's automated. And then if there's follow-up required, you can um, just, you know, talk to them on a very individual and personal level. And um, you try and provide them the information that they need, get them the right number or the right person to contact. And if their issue is not resolvable through those channels, then there is an accountability gap that needs to be addressed and we have to write a story about it. Mm. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's a great model. And uh, we're we're fans of Outlier. We're fans of Candace Fortman and so Everest here. So, yeah, uh, yeah. great work, uh, the two of you. This has been uh, one amazing conversation, and I hope it's a conversation that we could continue. If you, our listeners, have topics that you want discussed on the podcast, you can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram on Authentically Detroit, or you can email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail dot com. It is time for shout outs, <laughs> Donna. You are beaming yes, today I in am. the shout out portion of the show <laughs> i want you to tell us why shout out to my husband kevin david i wish y'all could see donna right now spirit of oh my god jg <laughs> that was a great job he um he got a spirit of detroit award today yeah. for wow. 38 years <laughs> For 38 years of service at the charles h wright museum wow. he has worked there virtually his entire life i haven't done anything for 38 years consecutively so i'm like well but no he um he was hired by dr wright he started on loan to dr wright to do an exhibit and then dr wright hired him to do a voting rights um 
exhibit in 1983. And from then on, he helped train him um, through, you know, these national museum exhibitors. He was a student at the College of Creative Studies, and he was trained by the best. And the Charles Wright Museum has one of the only black exhibit designers on staff in the nation. Mm. And um, that is my husband. So oh, wow. I am super proud of him. Um, he is a nice person. You know, he's not very he's talkative, great. doesn't demand a lot of attention. Let's me have a lot of limelight. But today is for him because um, in his quiet way, he does great things um, for everybody in his world, um, starting with me. So I'm just really happy to see him get that recognition. <laughs> Congratulations, <laughs> Kevin. Congratulations. Um, before we go, I want to offer Aaron and Aaron an opportunity to shout out anybody that you guys want to shout out. You guys have shout outs you want? I know it's always like. I'll shout out my mom. Okay. Um, she's, she's great. She's so supportive. She shared the article with every single member of my family and she donated to outlier media this week. So that's so great. Thanks Gail. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I should shout out my kids because you know, they're like little Detroiters and you know, one of that the sounds like a show. And they're, you know, they're like, they're going to build the Detroit of the future. So, you know, let's hopefully it'll be a better one than we have. Now. Shout out to the little Detroiters. <laughs> Listen, Detroit, as always, we thank you so much for listening and we want you to catch the wave. We'll see you next time.